Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrasli. Far-right extremism has gone mainstream. This country has seen a rise in violence by white supremacists. Far-right attacks in Europe jumped 43% between 2016 and 2017. This month, FBI Director Christopher Wray raised racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists to the same threat level as ISIS. Ideas once discussed in whispers are now shattered through the megaphone of social media. Adherents organize marches. It was an image that conjured up memories of America's darkest period of racial segregation and violence. White nationalists carrying torches. Chanting blood and soil and one people, one nation and immigration marched through the University of Virginia campus in Charlottesville late last. And incited by a sitting U.S. president, they even seek the violent overthrow of democracy. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. The storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th was hardly a one-off shock. Instead, it was the culmination of years of increasing activity by far-right groups, emboldened and encouraged by political leaders. From France's Front National to Germany's alternative for Deutschland to the neo-Nazis of Golden Dawn in Greece, far-right populists are grabbing the headlines and seem to be on the rise across Europe. Now policymakers have finally seemed to have recognized the threat. The Department of Homeland Security issuing a rare terrorism bulletin today, warning about a heightened threat environment across the United States. Canada has designated the far right-wing group Proud Boys as a terrorist entity in response to the attack on the U.S. Capitol last month. Here to help us understand this phenomenon is Cynthia Miller Idris, a professor at American University. Hi, Cynthia. This is Elmira. Hi, Elmira. How are you? Great. It's so great to talk to you. Cynthia is the director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab and author of the new book, Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right. All my watch is off. My phone is off. <laughs> so She joins us from Washington, D.C. All right. Good to go. I want to start by clarifying just how pervasive far-right extremism is today. It's been in the news a lot lately, but many point out that it's nothing new. Mm -hmm. Is far-right activity really on the rise? It's definitely on the rise on every measure we have available, but it also has a long history. And so it didn't come out of, you know, it's not been created out of whole cloth, both on the white supremacist extremist side in the U.S. I mean, that ideology kind of coalesced in the mid-1800s, although, of course, the foundation of white supremacy is older than that with colonialism and genocide of Native Americans and slavery. But uh, really around the time of the end of slavery, you see the creation of the Ku Klux Klan and kind of vigilante groups that are white supremacist. And that continues for you know, a century, but then joined by a kind of anti-government white power movement that's created around the time of the returning Vietnam veterans in the 1970s. And so that leads into things like uh, militia groups that lead to Waco and Ruby Ridge and eventually Oklahoma City um, and the bombing that killed 168 people by Timothy McVeigh, who was an anti-government extremist and also a white supremacist. So you had that kind of combination of factors. And then 9-11 happened. And so the U.S. and the global focus really shifted to Islamist and international terrorism. But 
white supremacist extremism and anti-government extremism didn't go away. After Obama was elected, we had a record-breaking number of hate groups emerge. And so all along, these groups were growing. The lethality was growing. And we had the mainstreaming and normalization that happened then over the last four or five years, as we saw in things like Charlottesville and in terrible terrorist attacks in El Paso and Pittsburgh and Christchurch globally. And so we've been seeing these things over time, but it really wasn't until Christchurch in El Paso that we started to see a serious American reaction. And then finally in October 2020, the Department of Homeland Security issued its latest threat assessment report, which said actually domestic violent extremism is now the greatest threat facing the nation, and specifically white supremacist extremism is the most lethal threat within that threat landscape. In the U.S., far-right groups include neo-Nazis, militia groups, the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, and the Proud Boys. What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacist and right like me to condemn? White Proud supremacists and right Proud Boys. Boys. Stand back and stand by. And then there are conspiracy theorists, such as those affiliated with QAnon. The people who believe in this think that U.S. intelligence agencies and America's cultural elite are working together in some diabolical plot to ruin the world, and that there's a secret savior named Q who's trying to stop them and needs their help. Cynthia says that members of these groups typically hold some combination of four different beliefs. They hold anti-democratic beliefs and practices, so either authoritarianism or they're not committing to protecting minority rights or to the rule of law, for example. They hold hierarchical beliefs about superiority and inferiority between groups, and that can be male supremacy or Western supremacy or Christian supremacy or white supremacy. And then they hold some kind of fantastical conspiracy ideas sort of about some restoration or an end times that are coming that will be a better time. And so sometimes that's framed around something like the Great Replacement, which is the global white supremacist extremist uh, conspiracy theory that has united other kind of conspiracy theories in the in the U.S. The one uh, that was popular was called white genocide. And in Europe, it was called Eurabia. This idea in both cases that there's an orchestrated attempt to replace white civilizations with multicultural ones through immigration and demographic change. And then finally, it's the use of violence. And for the most extreme fringe, it's not just a tolerated use of violence, but a kind of celebrated use of violence to create chaos and to bring about that societal downfall and rebirth. Why do such racist, exclusionary, and anti-democratic views appeal to so many people? Some argue that economic insecurity plays a major role. According to the Washington Post, nearly 60% of those facing charges related to the Capitol riot had previously had money troubles, like bankruptcies and bad debts. But Cynthia says it's not that simple. They are right that there is a kind of element of insecurity to it, and it can be related to um, the economy. But I think what people are missing is that it's a deeper sense of you know, precariousness, a kind of feeling that you could lose something rather than actually being already disenfranchised. And that's the predictor. And so what's what's really important is this dynamic of precarity or precariousness 
combined with entitlement. So they could lose something to which they're entitled, and it will be given away to someone who doesn't deserve it. And when you look at that combination of factors, you see that in the white supremacist extremist fringe about the loss of a majority white country or the desire to have an ethnostate that is white, you see that in resistance to Second Amendment restrictions and gun control. You see that language in things like the Stop the Steal. And so it's that idea that someone else is getting something tyrannically or that um, they don't deserve. It comes across an anti anti-immigrant sentiment. But what it is not tied to is actual unemployment or actual disenfranchisement. And so the study that I think makes it most clear to people when I tell them about this research is there was a good study a few years ago that showed that people are not more likely to join the far right if they are actually unemployed, but they are more likely to join it if they grew up with an unemployed parent. So it's that experience of potential loss. It's the feeling of precariousness, of knowing that you could lose something, which then through propaganda online is often easily converted to a sense of betrayal and anger. As Cynthia points out, the internet has made a big difference for far-right recruitment and mobilization. Followers can connect online, in Reddit communities, or through messaging apps. And popular memes provide a sort of coded language that helps far-right groups build a collective identity. A popular cartoon character turned internet meme, Pepe the Frog, has been added to the Anti-Defamation League's database of hate symbols. In a press release, the organization wrote the character had been, quote, used by haters on social media to suggest racist, anti-Semitic, or other bigoted notions as a hate symbol, end quote. So speaking of joining these groups, the internet has clearly made it much easier to find like-minded individuals online. How have far-right extremists used the internet to recruit others in recent years? Well, it's a great question. You know, the internet totally opened up a new ecosystem for recruitment and for radicalization. So where you used to have kind of mailing newsletters that just, you know, you had to sign up for it and it was a limited reach. You had to print the things, you had to copy them, and then you had to mail them out. And they just went to those people and you really, they wouldn't be passed on that much further. Online ecosystem is radically different because not only do you have the potential to spread disinformation, misinformation, or propaganda much more broadly, but there's an almost unlimited kind of range of places and spaces where that can happen. So it's not just in a one form, like a newsletter, but it can happen in online gaming platforms where you have a ton of of young people, teenagers and youth hanging around all day. And so white supremacist extremist recruiters will hang around there too and try to recruit people. And so we know that 23% of online gamers will encounter white supremacist propaganda or content while they're gaming. There's so many different ways that the online spaces and the ecosystem of, of the internet kind of help both expand the places where people can be reached in mainstream places, but also create entirely new ways to to connect and to crowdsource funds to share both video and audio content, as well as meme-based propaganda and draw people in that way. So you mentioned teenagers and, you know, people playing video games I mean, clearly teenagers are particularly vulnerable. 
Can you tell us more about how the far right has weaponized youth culture as you frame it? Yeah, thanks for asking that, because that is, I think it's, you know, it's a really big part of what's happened. And what we have been seeing and continue to see is that far-right groups and kind of online spaces have managed to make the far-right youth culture seem like the counterculture. And so there's a lot of use of irony and satire and wit and humor, the use of memes to make jokes out of things, the trolling, and then the framing of everyone who reacts badly as just kind of triggered snowflakes who can't take a joke, right? And and I think that that has effectively kind of been one of the strategies that has weaponized youth culture to make the far right seem like the edgy, ironic, and humorous one, while kind of mainstream normies are just too serious and, and really can't take the joke. And that has made it really much more attractive to be the place that is edgy and provocative and trolling and being the one who provokes and who challenges. And there's a sense of kind of power that comes from that and a sense of secrecy from the games, the codes, the emojis, the different kinds of signals and signs and symbols that evolve, the memes that evolve. So you get to be the insider, you know, kind of within the club if you understand it. Um, and others either don't get the joke or are left out or just, you know, not cool enough to really understand the humor and the wit. Radicalized young people have often engaged in violence. In 2016, an 18-year-old right-wing extremist shot nine people dead at a shopping mall in Munich. Police are investigating possible links to Norwegian right-wing mass murderer Anders Brevik. Last August, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse shot three people, killing two in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We begin with those photos of accused Kenosha gunman Kyle Rittenhouse flashing so-called white power signs, drinking a beer and hanging with the Proud Boys. From the UK to Australia, teenagers have been convicted for plotting or encouraging terrorist acts in recent years. But even those who are supposed to be stopping such crimes are often far-right sympathizers. In the U.S., law enforcement officials have been linked to militant racist groups in more than a dozen states since 2000. In fact, far-right leaders have actively sought to infiltrate police forces. Last September, former neo-Nazi Frank Mink testified before House Democrats on the issue. White supremacist leaders encouraged their followers to join the police force as a means to cause harm to people of color. In the military, about a third of active duty troops have experienced or witnessed instances of white nationalism, such as swastika drawings and racist tattoos. So another area of concern is radicalization among law enforcement and military personnel. Nearly 20% of those charged in storming the Capitol had links to the military. How have these institutions become breeding grounds for the far right? Well, I think the first thing to say about the military and law enforcement is, one, there's always been a problem. And so we know that or at least there's a long history of problems in law enforcement and the military. What we don't know is whether those, you know, anecdote after anecdote of chat rooms that are sharing anti-Semitic or racist or anti-immigrant content of occasional members of the KKK in law enforcement or of members of extremist groups, members who are even plotting things, and then members who are veterans, of course, the veterans community who have repeatedly been involved in terrorist activities and extremist violence. 
So we've we've been seeing this over the years for many, many years. And I think now there is finally some much needed attention to it. But what we still don't have is data that shows whether this is a problem of a few bad apples or something more systematic. And so we really have not had the kind of transparency within the military or law enforcement or the Department of Defense or Department of Justice to hold local and, and different agencies, you know, local law enforcement officers and, and local agencies accountable for these things or to, or to track it and report it in any way. We might have a better understanding of the problem soon. The Capitol riot has spurred military and law enforcement leaders to begin confronting extremism within their ranks. For example, the acting chief of the Washington, D.C. police has called for tighter background checks on all officers. He also wants to implement a new process for identifying and dealing with extremist activities within the force. And President Joe Biden's new Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, has called for a deeper conversation on extremism within the armed forces. The Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, ordering a service-wide stand-down for the next 60 days. This comes after the Pentagon was surprised to find veterans and active duty service members among the Capitol rioters last month. During his confirmation hearing, Austin, who is the first black defense secretary, pledged to fight against racism and extremism inside the military's ranks. Take a listen. The job of the Department of Defense is to keep America safe from our enemies. But we can't do that if some of those enemies lie within our own ranks. So Biden vowed to fight extremism with an approach that focuses on security. But given how pervasive far-right views in law enforcement and the military have become, how much confidence can we actually have in security forces' ability to lead the effort? I think that it's early days for the Biden administration. So I think to be fair, you know, we have to say that uh, it's hard to know exactly what the plans are. But every indication so far is, as you suggest, um, indicating that the approach is going to be heavily security focused and law enforcement focused. And there are two problems with that, at least. Right. One is that at its very best, even if it's a perfect system, that's a Band-Aid solution. Right. It's you're never going to stem the root of the problem and you have to have law enforcement and intelligence security services get it right every time, which is, you know, what the IRA said, you know, in I think it was in the 1980s when there was an attack that failed and and their response was, well, you know, they have to get it right. Like every time we only have to get it right once. And so even in a perfect system to have that expectation of the FBI or of law enforcement or intelligence that you get everything right is ridiculous, right? We can never expect that but it's not a perfect system. On top of that, um, we know that there are flaws, that there's infiltration, that there are people who are looking the other way or don't take it seriously. And then the third problem is just that, you know, how far do we want to go down that path as a society to have ever more securitization as the response to terrorist acts and extremist acts of violence? You know, it's ever more safeguards, like take your shoes off before you go onto the airplane and you can't bring bottles of water. And, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., which in the week around the inauguration was a completely militarized zone. I mean, military checkpoints on the bridges. You couldn't go to Virginia and back, you know, without um, potentially having a, a military checkpoint stop to have your car inspected. And and that do we want to live that life? Is that the, the, the life we want as a society? And I think 
the law enforcement and security and militarization response is that that's where you end up. Unless you really think that that's a deterrent to the growth of extremism, then we just end up with an ever more securitized world. And I think we have to be looking at this from an education and social work and, and sort of public health crisis perspective to stem some of the roots of radicalization in addition to, you know, to some accountability, right? We do need the law enforcement accountability to happen, but it just can't be the, I shouldn't, I don't even think it should be the primary way, um, but it can't, certainly can't be the only way that this is addressed. As Cynthia notes, tackling far-right extremism exclusively from a national security standpoint won't be enough. We have to address the causes. Here, many are pinning their hopes on deplatforming. Cynthia, within hours of Trump's speech on January 6th, Facebook and Twitter kicked him off their platforms. And that was followed by a crackdown on QAnon and other far-right groups. Popular far-right platforms like Parler were also driven offline, at least for a while. To what extent can deplatforming act as a remedy for extremism? So deplatforming, I think, is a useful technique for reducing the spread of misinformation and for reducing the exposure of people in the mainstream to extremist ideas. So it does take away the worst offenders who breach the community guidelines or platform guidelines and make it less likely that other people will encounter it. And that's a good thing, right? And so we do know that misinformation and disinformation dropped dramatically after those changes, after that deplatforming happened in January. But I think it's also a mistake to think that it's really a solution for addressing extremism itself. In other words, I think it's effective for the mainstream, but not for extremism. It's, again, this kind of Band-Aid solution. It may have some impacts, and it has been shown to have some impacts on reducing the ability of groups to fundraise or communicate, for example. But what we mostly know is it's more like a whack-a-mole problem. They just migrate to other platforms, sometimes the further underground Uh, more into the dark web or alternative spaces that are even harder to track and where they become kind of echo chambers of even more toxic information by just being concentrated with other people with extreme views in ways that can actually accelerate or move along radicalization. So, you know, it's like banning policies. You know, when I look at school banning policies that say, you know, in the schools outside of Berlin, when I was first studying this issue, Uh, They banned the number 88 from display because 8 is the eighth letter of the alphabet for HH for Heil Hitler. So it's a a longstanding Nazi and neo-Nazi code. And so they said you can't display the number 88. And they just started wearing T-shirts almost immediately that said, you know, 100 minus 12 or 87 plus 1. I mean, you just can't stop the problem with banning and deplatforming alone because it just leads to more creativity, game playing, emergence of new spaces. And in some cases, they get actually even smarter by, you know, kind of coming back into the same platforms, but using Cyrillic letters or using other languages to evade the algorithm, using different codes. So Boogaloo becomes Big Luau or um, Big Igloo or Blue Igloo. And that just, you know, it becomes an ever escalating game of codes and cat and mouse that actually lends a sense of power and secrecy and fun and game playing to those who are um, pursuing that game and, and kind of making it a little bit entertaining and also kind of trolling legal authorities and adults who are constantly trying to stem it. So what approaches can work to find the answer the U.S. should look abroad? Mm 
Four months before extremists stormed the U.S. Capitol, demonstrators in Berlin attempted to do the same thing at the Reichstag, Germany's parliament building. Now, demonstrators against the government's pandemic policies, along with far-right groups and science deniers, overwhelmed police and rushed the entrance to the German parliament. The response from the German government was swift and wide-ranging. President Frank-Walter Steinmeier called it an intolerable attack in the heart of our democracy. Cynthia says that the U.S. is still far behind Germany, as well as countries like Norway and New Zealand, in addressing domestic extremism. I think Germany, like New Zealand and Norway, there are other places that have addressed this in a more kind of 360 or whole of society way. And I think there are lessons to be learned from each of them. So where you have Germany working, you know, they've just invested a billion euros in 89 specific measures to address racism and right-wing extremism. So they combine those two. What's really important about that is understanding that right-wing extremism just doesn't emerge out of whole cloth, but it's you know, it's it's part of a society that also has to grapple with issues of diversity and representation and systemic racism and and that you can't only address the extreme fringes of that without also addressing some of those issues in the roots. And so that's a really important thing that I think the U.S. is just, we are having a national reckoning on race, but those conversations are usually pretty separate from the conversations about the reckoning on domestic violent extremism, even in the Biden administration, which has separate commissions or, or you know, groups and committees dealing with it. So I think there has to be a lot more conversation and stitching together of kind of anti-racist work and education with what it means to prevent radicalization. And we see much more of that kind of work happening in places like New Zealand, which has a really strong community-based and victims-centered approach, or Germany, which is trying to stitch together the combating of racism and the, you know, addressing equity and diversity with issues of countering violent extremism. But extreme polarization has often paralyzed the U.S. government. Can we really expect a meaningful discussion on racism and domestic extremism? You know, I I guess my view on that is, I, I think, yes, the polarization has accelerated so far and has gone so far that we really are at a kind of point where it's very hard to imagine addressing those two things together in any way. And at the same time, I'm sort of not willing to just write it off or give it up. I think that the solution just might not be in the federal government. But I think that in communities with local mayors and governors associations, we are seeing that the stand down orders in the military, opportunities to open up those conversations around racism and white supremacist extremism or domestic violent extremism. I just don't know that we can expect the government to really take the lead on this in terms of the federal government. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Thank you for having me. That was Cynthia Miller Idris, a professor at American University and the director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab. She is the author of a number of books, most recently, Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Rosalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.